All right, tonight we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look at uh, a relatively famous passage. It's often referred to as the transfiguration of Jesus, and it's uh, a rather dramatic passage. We're going to give it a shot all the same. So at Mark chapter 9, I'll read to us from verses 2 through 13, and then we'll look at this together. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So we're continuing to look at the Gospel of Mark to to study the life of Jesus. And last week we looked at probably the most central passage in Jesus' ministry about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And it's a passage that runs contrary to every way that we think about life. It's the upside-down message of the kingdom that Jesus preaches. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It flips everything upside down. And in, in a quote that I, part of a quote I read from last week uh, that C.S. Lewis wrote, he says, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. I don't know about you, but I find that very hard to do. How on earth are you supposed to do that? For any number of reasons. Perhaps one of the greatest might be losing your life is not an easy thing to do on purpose. In fact, we spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week trying to preserve our lives. It's pretty normal. And Jesus calls you to do something that's completely contrary to 
your nature from top to bottom, from side to side, from beginning to end? How are we supposed to respond to this? And I think the answer to that question is in this passage. It's in the transfiguration of Jesus. This is a story where Jesus and his disciples, the three uh, main disciples, Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the disciples, along with Jesus, go up on this mountain. And Jesus, the text tells us, is transfigured before them. And that's a word that really only appears, it appears four times in the New Testament. And every time it appears, it has in view a radical change, a radical transformation. It's actually the word that we get metamorphosis from. That here Jesus is transformed. That his glory breaks through. So what is it that you need in light of this call to follow Jesus? What you need is you need this vision of the glory of Jesus. You need a vision of glory. And we find it here on this mountain that Jesus gives his disciples, as it were, a a glimpse into where the story is headed, what's going to happen, even though he has said already to them that he must suffer and die and after three days rise again. Here, Jesus says, I'm giving you a glimpse of where everything is headed, that you will one day see me alive from the dead in all of my glory, and you will be there with me. So, what then does this passage give us? What do we need from, to see from this passage about the glory of Jesus that can sustain us for the journey ahead? Here's what we need, and this is what I want us to see. You need a vision of glory that you can trust. You need a vision of glory that includes suffering. And you need a vision of glory that draws near and that you can take with you. So first, let's look at what you need in a vision of glory that you can trust. Several features in this story, they call our attention back to earlier stories in the Old Testament. There are a number of features here that do that for us. One, Jesus takes them up on a high mountain. Another one is, there is the cloud that overshadows them in verse 7. But perhaps as clearly as any is the fact that Elijah and Moses show up. And I just want to read you a passage here from Exodus chapter 24 that is certainly echoed in this story. Listen to what we find here. Exodus chapter 24 is after God has brought the people out of Egypt. They've arrived at Mount Sinai. And God is establishing his people. He's entering into a relationship with them. And here's what we read. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of all Israel. You're meant to connect this moment, the glory of Jesus that is revealed on this mountain, with previous stories where God has revealed his glory. 
But what's in particularly striking about this one, if you just even can remember that, what I just read to you, how did the glory of God appear to Moses? It appeared in thunder and smoke and fire. But when we read this story, there is no fire, there is no thunder, there is no lightning. Elsewhere, we also read in the Old Testament where God appears, there's earthquakes, there's none of that. Why not? And the answer to that question is precisely this. All of the glory of God is now located in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh. He is the glory of God in human form. That's why Mark draws our attention to this story in such a way that would remind us, if, especially if you were a first century Israelite, first century Jew, of that story of Moses. Because he wants you to see, oh, this is the glory of God. Jesus is God's glory here in the flesh. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And therefore, not only do we see that Jesus here is the embodiment of God's glory, that when God here speaks on the mountain, what he says to these disciples, he speaks in a, in a manner very similar to the very, at the very beginning of Mark's gospel after Jesus was baptized. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I want you to, to, to connect Jesus' baptism with this story too. Because when Jesus was baptized, the way the story reads, God speaks directly to, to Jesus. He says, you are my beloved son. And then he says, with you I am well pleased. In other words, God delights in Jesus. And here, when God speaks again, out of this cloud, he's not speaking to Jesus directly. He's speaking to the disciples directly. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what I want you to notice here is that this whole event is about listening to Jesus. The fundamental most basic quality or characteristic of a follower of Jesus is do you listen to him? And here's the thing. If God at the beginning of this story says, this is my beloved son, I delight in him. And then later on he says again, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. And you don't. What does that tell you about what you think about God and what he delights in and who he delights in? You see, this glory that you can trust is built on a relationship between the Father and the Son. And if the Father trusts the Son to represent him, to be the very embodiment of his glory, to come to this earth, to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves, 
Don't you think you could trust him? That here is a vision of glory that you need and you can trust. And it's meant to help you to listen to him. Now let me ask you, let me try to flip it around. What might this look like? What would it look like for you to listen to Jesus? The question you have to ask yourself is, are you teachable? Are you teachable? Because my guess is, if you are in need of something, or there is a skill you don't have but you would like to learn, or you, ha- you need to have something done and you can't do it, you're going to listen. You're very teachable when you are very aware of what you lack, of your need, of your desperation. And here, God speaks to us, pointing to Jesus and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, why is it so difficult to listen to Jesus? Why does God say this to the disciples and to us? I think the answer to that is quite simply exactly the problem the disciples are having. What's the problem the disciples are having at this point in the story? What we've seen already is they cannot reconcile their idea of Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God, and the fact that Jesus says he has to suffer and die and rise again. It challenges every category they have about how the world works and what they think about God. And the reason I think it's so hard for us to listen to Jesus is at some level, we are searching for a way to get glory without suffering. Searching for some way to get glory without having to go through denying ourselves and following after Jesus. And that's why we also need a vision of glory that includes suffering. So Jesus, in verses 9 through 13, takes up this very question. After this revelation of Jesus and his glory on the mountain, they begin their descent. It says in verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. See, Jesus draws a, a, a link here and that cannot be broken between this vision of his glory and his resurrection. In other words, there is no way to understand the glory of Jesus apart from or without or besides his resurrection. And to say that also includes his suffering and his death. That for Jesus, there is no such thing as glory apart from his humiliation. That glory comes only after humiliation. But notice here, what happens to the disciples? In verse 10, it says that they kept the matter to themselves and they were questioning what this rising from the dead 
might mean. And this, this statement here is very similar to what we saw them do several chapters ago after they saw Jesus feed 4,000 people. And they were uh, discussing among themselves, but they were not asking Jesus anything. It's a rather negative term. It said more about the disciples than even what they were curious about. And the same thing is happening here. They're questioning what this might mean. And so then they ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now there's all this business here about Elijah coming and the renewal of all things. And what's, what are they talking about? Well, here's what they're talking about. Since they saw Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus on the mountain, when he was transfigured, it immediately drew to their minds the passage that we read earlier from Malachi chapter 4, where both Moses and Elijah appear in a passage where Malachi, the prophet, describes the day of the Lord where he describes when God will make everything right. And he attaches Elijah to that great day. That when Elijah appears again, that will be the end. That means that the restoration of all things is very near. Well, okay, the disciples say, that would seem to suggest that all of this talk about suffering it won't be necessary. So why do you keep talking about that? And Jesus, he begins here to show them that they don't yet understand what it means. He agrees. He says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he goes on again and he says, How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, this is a little bit confusing, a little complicated to sort out. Let me try to resolve it for us a little bit. In Matthew chapter 17, in the parallel passage to this, Matthew makes it very clear that the disciples began to understand, okay, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. That what is happening here is Jesus is using Elijah as the forerunner, or that Elijah's ministry pointed to the ministry of John the Baptist. So what's happening here is Jesus is using John the Baptist's ministry to be a clue to help them understand that, yes, the time is fulfilled. The time of God to make all things new is at hand. It's come. But you still don't understand how it's going to come, that it has to come through suffering. And so here, Mark weaves this together and uses this conversation about Elijah to show us that Mark actually is pointing to John the Baptist and using him as a way to help explain what's so difficult for the disciples to understand. So essentially, here's what he's saying, that just as Elijah's coming was a a herald or proclaimed the Lord's coming. So, Elijah's execution is a herald or a pointer to the Lord's execution. 
You see, in the very beginning of Mark, he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, right before Malachi chapter 4 that we read earlier. And it describes that he's going to send a messenger who will go before the Lord. And that's John the Baptist. And then he describes the suffering of Elijah. And it's interesting to point out that Elijah, during even his own ministry, is confronted with and experiences suffering at the hands of a a king and his wife who want nothing more than to see all of God's prophets die. And here, in Mark's story, the same thing happens to John the Baptist. Herod and Herodias proved to be his undoing. And that very life experience of John the Baptist becomes the pattern for understanding Jesus' life in ministry. Now, clearly the disciples, they're still struggling with all of this. They're asking questions. They've yet to grasp that, yes, the time has come. Elijah has come. The time to restore all things is near, and yet the Son of Man must still suffer many things. Why is it so important for us to listen to Jesus, to get his identity and his mission right? Let me just suggest a few things. What this means why it's so important to have a vision of glory that includes this suffering, the suffering of Jesus, is that no matter what you face, it will be swallowed up in life. That's the good news. Even in the midst of the suffering that Jesus goes through, or even in the midst of the suffering that you go through, Jesus tells us that His glory only makes sense through the lens of his death and his resurrection. That means for anyone related to him, connected to him, you have that same hope. That whatever you experience this side of heaven, it will be swallowed up in life. But it also means that suffering is not meaningless. And it means also that you are never alone when we embrace and understand what Jesus is teaching us here. And because Jesus' glory includes suffering, he promises in this passage to be with you through your suffering as you follow after him. So you you need a vision of glory that you can trust. You need a vision of glory that includes suffering. But lastly, you need a vision of glory that draws near to you and that you can take with you. One of the most unique parts of this story, especially when you look at it compared to the other gospel writers, is how much Mark stresses in the way he writes it that the disciples are with Jesus, that they are included in this event of Jesus' transfiguration. He describes it this way. He says that Jesus takes the disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain. Then Mark describes that Jesus, that that Elijah and Moses, they appear to them or before them, that Jesus is transfigured before them. Everything in the story happens right in front of them, in very close proximity to Jesus. 
And he tells us that Peter, James, and John in verse 6, they're terrified. I can't imagine why. This would be a sight like you've never seen before. Now, why might that be? Why might they be terrified? It certainly could be just because of the events, but there's something more going on here. These disciples, Peter, James, and John, they know. They know what God said back in Exodus chapter 33 to Moses, that no one can stand in the presence of God and see him face to face and live. These guys are still alive. And they are standing in the presence of God in the flesh. And my guess is they're wondering when it's going to end. When will this take their life? And it doesn't. And for the first time, we discover there is a way for men and women, boys and girls, to stand in the presence of God and not be ruined. And it only happens because Jesus has come. Now, why why does Jesus explain all of this? Why does Jesus draw them so near to him? Here's the answer. Because he wants you to know that he has come to dwell with you. That he wants to be with you. How does Mark tell us that? Well, first of all, he does it through this weird thing that Peter says. He tells us in verse 5 that, or in verse 6, that he, had, he actually had no idea what to say. But what he says in verse 5 ends up being incredibly profound. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, it'd be easy, I think, for us to run right past that and, and not see what's happening when, when he says, let us, make the, let us make tents for you. What's he talking about? Well, what Peter's saying there actually takes us back into the Old Testament when God tabernacled with his people. That God, how he dwelt with his people was through a tabernacle, a, a portable temple, a, a portable house where the glory of God would descend. And as we read here, this cloud would fill the tabernacle. And that symbolized God's presence with his people. And here, Peter, not knowing what to say, clings to that hope that maybe this might be, maybe one time, one day, once again, God will dwell with his people as he did in the past. But here's the good news I want you to see in this story. That what, he, what we see Mark doing and telling us the, about the transfiguration, there is no longer need for these tents. And Peter and you and I need to realize that. The need for these tents has has, has passed because here God is providing his own tabernacle in which to dwell in the person of his son Jesus. See, here's the good news I want you to see from this story. And it, it really is, it'd be easy to miss, but it comes in verse 8. 
Try, try to put yourself in, in, in the story with, with the disciples and all the glory that they've seen. Moses and Elijah appear. They're overshadowed by the cloud of God's presence and hear his voice pointing to the sun, calling them to listen to him. And then verse 8, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's like the lights went out. It goes dead quiet. All that's left is Jesus and these three disciples on a top of a mountain and the stars. What's Mark trying to say? What Mark is trying to say is that the only vision of Jesus that you need is Jesus as a man come in the flesh standing right in front of you. This is a remarkable moment because here, the one Jesus who calls people to follow him, he doesn't abandon them for this glory that we get a glimpse of here. He turns from this glory. And what's the next thing Mark tells us? He walks back down the mountain with Peter, James, and John on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross. See, this is a picture in story form of what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that Jesus gave up his place with his Father and he came to earth and he was obedient even unto death. Here, we see something even more grand and beautiful than all of the times in the Old Testament when God appeared to his people on a mountain. And the two times that at least are pictured here when God appeared to Moses on Sinai and then when he rains down fire in 1 Kings, 8, 1 Kings 18 with Elijah. What's, what all of those stories have in common, God never comes down the mountain. He always stays on the top of the mountain. And no one can get there except the one person he chooses. And do you see what's happening here? Here, in Jesus, God is now coming down the mountain. As a man. To rescue you. Here we see Jesus turning away from his glory. Giving up his glory. In order to enter into the path of suffering. That would lead him to the cross. But remember, what makes all of this make sense is his resurrection. That his death and his resurrection is where we discover the meaning of his glory. Do you see this glory of Jesus yet? How it leads you to trust him, how it brings hope to our suffering, and how it proves that he will never leave you or forsake you. See, here Jesus has given us a glimpse of his glory so that we might find hope and courage to follow after him no matter what life brings. Jesus calls you to take up your cross, to deny yourself and follow him. How can you do that? Well, the answer he gives us is you need a vision of his glory. 
And there you will find trust. You will find hope in the midst of your suffering. And you will find that he draws nearer to you. And he walks with you. You can take him with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for how it is a very unexpected way to find hope and and encouragement to follow after you. We pray that as we consider this story, the glory of Jesus, that it would melt our hearts, that we would find in it the good news that you have come to dwell with us. You've come to identify with us. That you have come to suffer and to die for us so that we might, through faith in you, experience the renewal of all things. That we might enter into joy and hope and a future through faith in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.